Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and our very special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, Heidi, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. So there's a lot going on, it turns out. And um, uh, Hattie, you're like in the wilderness, right? I Well, right now, I am sitting in my car outside of a brewery, <laughs> which I drove down. We're camping right now. And our listeners know we're big campers. And when I say camping, <laughs> I, I use the term with air quotes because we have like air conditioning in our camper and we bring like our sous vide and our dog and I have a puffy mattress. And so, I mean, it's really just, we have a smaller house that we take with us to beautiful places. You camp like Colonel Brandon, I imagine would have camped. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm great with that. Like, I don't <laughs> care who judges me for that. I am comfortable. I sleep well. I have the best time. So anyway, I'm, we drove into town so I could get Wi-Fi so I could record the podcast. And we are sitting, I'm sitting outside a brewery hmm. on their Wi-Fi in my car because I love this book and I want to have this conversation. <laughs> so if all of a sudden she disappears, <laughs> she probably got chased away by somebody at the brewery saying, why are you stealing our Wi-Fi? Right. Or Seriously. a bear. Yeah. Or a bear. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and Karen, you have a book coming out. Do you do you uh do you want to talk about the book or should we save that for later? Or people should people just check you out online? Sure. I'll just briefly mention I have a, a book that I co-edited with a colleague coming out on July 9th, um hmm. called Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. Um, lots of essays by different um professing Christians with different perspectives on a whole bunch of different controversial topics. So that's fine. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> that's All right. Awesome. Well, so should, where's the best place for people to check that out? I mean, it's always Amazon, but is that what you would Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, Amazon has some issues right now. I think they're fine, but Heart and, Hearts <laughs> and Minds Bookstore is a great place. Eighth Day Books is another great independent bookseller. So anywhere where you like to get your books is fine. All right, great. Okay, so we are here to discuss Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's novel, one last time. Well, I guess one last time before we dive into listener questions. So next week, we will answer as many questions as we can. So we will have that thread up on Facebook and you can leave your questions there. You can also email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at closereadspods if you'd like to uh, send a question that way as well. And we'll get to as many as we can. Um, we'll do some where we go really deep and some where we do go a little more rapid fire. Um, and we'll, we'll get to as many as we can. And uh, hopefully that will be a good um, way of closing out this discussion on Sense and Sensibility. Um, I do have one question though that I need your help figuring out about this book, about the conclusion of this book. So it's a really... Um, 
it's a, I don't want to say that it's a, it's a deep question because that is kind of the opposite of what it is. But (laughs) (laughs) so, so I probably should not say that. So here's what I want to know. Does Edward actually deserve Eleanor? Oh, that is a deep question. Yeah. I think that's a really important question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're a good match. She's a good guy. can take care of her. Yeah, it's but not the big he... romantic ending. You know, it's not Jane Eyre, reader. I married him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. It is a little anticlimactic, anticlimactic in some ways. How this sort of just mm-hmm. all unfolds at the end. Karen, um, could you give me a little more than just yes? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I think so. We'll try. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, one of the dominant themes in this novel is the whole question of second attachments, right? And mm. and so that that we don't that language is odd to us because we live in a world where for you know most of us even within you know Christian communities, I think, um, yeah, there are attachments of various kinds, whatever, by the time we reach marrying age. Yeah. Um, and and Joshua Harris, notwithstanding, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> But this is like, in today's terms, Austin is confronting the idea of your one soulmate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's actually important in advancing that theme that we have this great match at the end or good match, whatever you land on that, that involves someone who had a previous attachment. And Mm -hmm. that's okay because there is no one soulmate. And I think that's a big part of what Austin is communicating in this novel. Um, you know, subtly, it's not like she's not preaching a sermon. It's not in yeah, your face, yeah. but this is a, an important theme. Hmm. Was that a big, you know, it's really, I'm asking this question to, to both of you, but specifically to you, Karen, was that a big deal in their culture? Like there's so many, I, I've never even thought of that when reading this novel before. That's, that is another good question that I don't have a definitive answer for, but my sense is that this was a kind of a burgeoning underlying idea mm. that would gr- gain prominence with the growing influence of capital R romanticism, the you know in- romantic movement, and that Austin, this is part of her genius, is she saw this as an, a development that was coming, and she... Mm you know, she basically foresaw it and was addressing it. Mm. Sort of prophetic in a way. Yes, yes, exactly. I find that so fascinating. I have a good friend that um, her mother, she this good friend who's my age, three kids married. And this this woman, her mother prayed her entire mothering life that her children would marry their first love. That was like a really oh. big deal to her. Hmm. And all of them did. All of them. And that is just... I, I had never thought of that as being something to value before. And when I heard that from my friend, I thought, oh, that's so fascinating. I've never thought of that before. <laughs> Maybe I should pray for that, right? Like I've never... I, I That's not something I grew up valuing or really thought of to pray for, although it does make a lot of sense. And so you pointed that out, Karen, at the beginning of the discussions about this book, and I had never paid attention to that before in this book. And you're exactly right. It's a major theme. It's everywhere. But I had not even... It just went right over my head. Hmm. So 
I just think that's, you know, I'm a close reader. I actually, that's how I make a living in this world. And I have not even <laughs> seen that before. So thank you for pointing that out. Well, well I can't see everything, welcome. I guess. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a crusader for for uh, against romanticism. So uh-huh. this is my bread and butter. <laughs> I see it everywhere. I feel yeah. like we need to talk more about that. You being a crusader against romanticism. I feel like we <laughs> yes. should spend the next half hour on that. <laughs> Please continue. What does that mean? Oh, wow. Well, the, I guess maybe the briefest answer is that my specialty, as I've said before, is 18th century British literature. A prominent mm-hmm. figure there is Jonathan Swift. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he predates the romantic period, but romanticism didn't happen overnight. Um, and there was, you know, there was romanticism, small r, it, in literature from you know the classical age, and so Swift, the satirist, spent a, a lot. A lot of his works are actually very anti-romantic, um, and they're amazing and wonderful and smart and brilliant and true. And I love Jonathan Swift, and I'm like basically his disciple. So, so, so did you? Are you his <laughs> disciple because you started out anti anti-romantic, or did you become anti-romantic because you're his disciple? The latter. I, I learned from him. I, I, I didn't okay. know what I was and that I started studying Swift in 18th century in grad school. And I'm like, oh, because I, I'm, I was pretty much a romantic without knowing it, you know, as a young person, which most people are. <laughs> We're all Marianne's until we learn better. Um, <laughs> and true. Yeah. It, it was Swift who taught me. Hmm. Well, my professor, but you know. <laughs> so do you think, so then you would make the case that Austin then is actively being... Uh, well, Swiftian in that sense that she that she yeah. is actively trying to subvert romanticism. Yeah, I mean, she was really more of a, she was influenced by the Augustan and neoclassical writers mm-hmm. of the 18th century more, more so than the you know newly emerging romantic writers. So I think she's very much a child of 18th century thinkers and writers. So, did what was the relationship of? the people who we think of as kind of leading the charge in romanticism to Austin's work. Do you have any idea about that? You know, the Wordsworths and so forth. That's a good question. Um, I mean, Austin, she was, you know, she was well received, but not, but wasn't wildly popular. Didn't that didn't happen until after her death. And of course, you know, she was taken from us too soon, but um, also people like Wordsworth, um, for all their talk of, you know, the language of the common people, um, they didn't really, you know, they were still like still traditional literary writers, poets. I mean, people weren't reading novels by women Mm. a great deal, um, Mm. until Austin, until, Mm. you know, until she made her mark. Mm. But that is a good question. I don't really know. That's so we, we're coming up with a lot of great research questions in this episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got maybe there. Hey, it's another book for you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, David. <laughs> okay, so since you have nothing else I'm going thinking. on, <laughs> I've thought of this while you guys are talking. So this is a brand new thought. I'm going to be formulating it in this exact moment. <laughs> but with what you're saying about the anti-romanticism, which seems very obvious in the Marianne Willoughby. Brent Brandon storyline. I'm wondering if that in some ways ties back to David's original question when you asked us, David, does Edward deserve Eleanor? And I'm wondering. Yeah, I wasn't going to let that go. We still need to talk about this. (laughs) Well, because here's my thought then 
and maybe this will just seem obvious to everybody, but it's new to me. So I, I'm, I'm really processing this. That maybe <sighs> one of the reasons why we're even asking that question is that that anti-romantic strain in Eleanor and Edward's relationship is she has to, Austin has to in some ways then write Eleanor not a big romantic hero. He's got to be kind of Mm -hmm. milk and water in some ways because she is making a case that the the woman isn't going to be rewarded with Willoughby, right? Mm. That that there has to, he's going to be a real person. Yeah. Okay. So, well, one of the things that I was having a I was asking. Well, I was thinking about anyway. I was. I was. Gonna, I was going to say I was having trouble with, but that's put, that's putting it too strongly. I was thinking about how throughout the book we know exactly why Marianne likes the men that she ends up liking. Even mm-hmm. even in the end, we kind of get. Even though it, it sort of in a way glosses over her attachment to Colonel Brandon, we never really get the, any any real scenes of them together. Um, but then it kind of explains why she ends up falling in love with him. And we definitely know what she likes about Willoughby and what she thinks makes for a good man. But we get much less of that in terms of Eleanor. And so you have to, you know, you have to read between the lines with her in terms of getting a sense right. of what it is she really sees in Edward. I think we know what she likes, what she values in a man as far as the virtues she values. Um, and so I guess we can make the assumption that Edward at least is modeling some of those. But I was at times I was kind of questioning whether she would um, see those things in him, whether she would be that attached to him, except that maybe love is a mysterious thing. Right. But then doesn't that, how is that anti-romantic? <laughs> <laughs> well, he is worth as shown in the last, in the second half of the book by him keeping his word to Lucy. And that, and you know that that almost feels like this puts him over the top. In I don't her eyes. know. Yeah, well, that it secures her attachment and in, in terms of her respect and esteem. Remember when Elizabeth said, or "Who is it that says I respect and esteem him? I greatly like him." Like that, mm-hmm. that she has this respect and esteem for him, and she thinks highly of him. Mm-hmm. And well of him, and she's also in love with him, and so in that ways he is redeemed in terms of his virtue from you know how how foolish he had been before. Many people have pointed out in the Facebook page, and even on this conversation on the air, we've talked about he really was wrong and to pursue her when he was attached to another woman. Um, but I, I think that there is a strong redemption of Edward's character. That we've seen over in the in the weeks behind us, but you know he's not the big romantic hero. He's not Willoughby. So you know we kind of left with that. Many many people are left with this dissatisfied sense at the end of this novel, which I think <laughs> what Karen's pointing out is that's kind of the point. <laughs> it is not a romantic yeah. novel. I think what I'm getting at is I just wish that maybe we could have used more Edward actually being in the book. <laughs> That's a fair right. point. But but when the book opens, I mean, basically, um, Eleanor has already, I, I don't even want to say the phrase fallen in love because mm-hmm. that's just not even part of all, you know, she already loves and, is, or, you know, esteems and respects Edward. Yeah. That's already yeah. happened. Yeah. So this isn't, so then, then we get, fair. So the, yeah. the contrast is, you know, we get, Marianne's journey of falling in love. 
Um, and so if we compare those two where the book opens, this, this connection between Eleanor and Edward has already taken place and their story is about overcoming the obstacles um, that arise. Um, it's not about Eleanor falling in love with, with right, Edward. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. That, yeah, that's true. It's a but given, it, you know? Yeah. That, that's an, it's interesting that you say that it's a it's not a it's it's about Marianne's journey of falling in love, not Eleanor. I mean, the idea of something being about something, I guess, is interesting because we've talked about a lot of the themes, but I was in reading it again. I'd forgotten how little, how quickly, I guess, it all sort of wraps up at the end because it's a pretty long novel that ends. I don't want to say abruptly, <laughs> but it ends rapidly. You know, um, even more so than say Pride and Prejudice, which has the, uh, I guess, a little epilogue at the end, right, where it kind of explains what everybody else is doing at that time. Um, so I got to thinking, it, what is this book like? Aside from the themes, which, what is this book about? Because is it really about their relationship? Is it really about any of the relationships? Um, I mean, we, I, again, we've talked about the themes that are, that are covered in it. Um, is it about, is, is the, is it about Marianne growing up? Um, is, so is it less about Marianne falling in love and falling, realizing her folly and then finding the right man or something like that? Um, or is it about, is it really not a book about love at all? I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> is right. that possible? I mean, it can't, I mean, when I say at all, obviously I'm being a bit hyperbolic. It's about, it's certainly about falling in love somewhat. <laughs> Right. But is it about more than that? Is it about something different than than that? That is that thought that the falling in love or being in love, you know, is superseded by. I think it's about sense and sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Fair. I really, you know, these were these were. Um, so you're saying I'm asking a dumb question? No, 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 no. <laughs> but it is. But it is helpful to remember that when when Austin first started working on this some umpteen years before it ended up being published. Yeah, it was yeah. started out as a work called Eleanor and Marianne. And mm. somewhere along the way in her revisions, it became Sense and Sensibility, which means that there's a shift. It is more about these ideas and these concepts um, than it is just about the characters and their stories. And mm-hmm. yeah. both Sense and Sensibility were really you know, hot topics of the time that a lot of people were talking about it. it yeah. It's really, you know, it, the epistemology. Do How do we know what we know? Do we know more through sense or more through sensibility? I mean, this was a, this was a big topic and this is Austin's contribution, I think, to that conversation. Hmm. So in some ways she's kind of, she's incarnating a, a cultural dialogue yeah. As he is trying to, you know, give us, right. you know, it actually calls yeah. to mind Hemingway, what we were talking about with Hemingway on another show, where in some ways he seems to be incarnating a sort of confusion. <laughs> and sometimes his characters can feel lean because of that. Um, I mean, um, you have to read so much between the lines. And I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. that Hemingway is as good as Austin or that they're very much alike, but they seem to be mm-hmm. operating literarily on, in, on a sort of similar plane. Mm-hmm. But the, well, I, and no, right. No, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say we're not here to talk about Hemingway, and we're not. I'm, we don't have to do direct comparison, but it seems like there's something similar going on there in terms of how they're incarnating a sort of cultural um, dialogue that's happening, even even without people meaning for it to happen. You know, these, some of these cult, sometimes cultural dialogues, or maybe almost always, they happen sort of, you know, without us knowing that they're happening for a mm-hmm. long time, and then all of a sudden you look up and you've been having a conversation for thirty years. <laughs> right. 
I think right. that is one of the hallmarks of a great writer, you know, a great, even a great novelist or short story writer is that they are, they see their times and they're mm-hmm. conversing with their times. They aren't, you know, again, preaching about them or writing, you know, didactic works about them. That That's why, you know, people who do that aren't great writers, but great writers are very much um, prophets of their time. And so I think that's something, I mean, I think of Flannery O'Connor as well. Yeah, um, much, yeah. yeah, she wrote about a very specific kind of world and time um, because she knew it so well and that's where she lived, but it's still, you know, it's, it's, there's still universal stories of, with universal appeal. Mm. Yeah. Right. yeah. Heidi, I think you were going to say something too. Right. I, I think, and I'm, I'm going to hesitate to take a stand on this, but I'm going to throw this out there more as a question um, specifically Coward. for Karen, Karen to reply to because this, and the reason is because I'm bowing to the expert here. That's why you go to a new restaurant. You ask the waiter what to order. What should I order here? Right. So, because you don't know oh, yet. Yeah. So, yes, yes. Which wine goes with this dish? You ask the sommelier. So, to me, I am not an expert in the 18th century novel, but I am a lover of literature and I do pay attention when I read. And it seems to me that out of all of Austin's novels, this is one, along with Mansfield Park, that feels to me the most didactic, the more like she's trying to make a point. Also, on this unparalleled lines to this... Austin is one of the great satirists and character developers in the history of the novel. So you know her characters, they're, they're, they're fully rounded. They have their own personality. They have this, they, they're really human. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to believe that Eleanor and, and Marianne are not actual people that I know. Right? They're just lovely, like fully developed characters that are just like people I know, including myself. So I think that that is... One of Austin's great gifts is she draws these amazing characters. Um, but at the same time, this novel does feel like she is making a... She is taking a stand on something. She's making a point in her culture when she's saying, this is right, and over here, there are people that get it wrong. Whereas some of her other novels just feel more like character studies when she's not necessarily trying to draw some kind of moral comparison She's just telling a good story. So you said you were going to ask a question, but you didn't. So is that true? <laughs> you guys, I mean, is that... So to, along with what you were saying, David, about Hemingway and about kind yeah. of this big, these bigger issues and your pro- the profit for the age, that was something that Karen said. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Am I on the right track there? Well, I mean, I think this this is one of the marks of immaturity of this novel is that it is a bit more didactic more obvious and it's and less artful um than her later works um mansfield park yeah could i mean it's it does it has those same problems maybe in different ways um but i think most readers yeah most readers probably i mean people either love mansfield park or or hate it um <laughs> they point it out as her best or her worst and i think it's for the reasons that, that you say so yeah i i think i i would i think what you've described is accurate well, so what you, Hattie, what you brought up there actually <clears throat> called to mind another question that I wanted to ask each of you, because we spent a, quite a bit of time talking about the ways that maybe this novel doesn't, that it is maybe a little bit more immature or it's, you know, it, she started it when she was barely 20 and 
it doesn't quite live up to say Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion or something like that. Um, so my question though is, let's set aside let's set aside that part of the conversation because I'd love to focus on what do you think are some of the the unique traits about this book that do stand out um, in comparison to some of her other work? Are there some things she's doing in this book maybe? Um, better than other works? Uh, maybe there's not, you can say that, but uh, uh, what are some of the, the positive traits that are particularly characteristic of this, of this work that maybe you enjoy more than in other, uh, others of her books? Are there any instances of things like that? Or is it, just, or is it really just... She's no, she hasn't quite hit her stride, but she's just a genius, so, so it's, it still gets close. Karen, what do you think? Do you have anything in mind for that? Um, I think... Um, that's, that's a good question. I actually think to go, I think that what we talked about before, I really like the fact that this isn't Eleanor's love falling in love story. I mm-hmm. like that the story opens and this connection has already been made and mm. it's not about yeah. that. And it's just about the social obstacles and the personal obstacles. Mm. Um, there's not that. There's not that Elizabeth and Darcy battle that the novel kind of centers right, around. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that's something that many people would see as a weakness, but it, but understanding what she's doing, it becomes a strength, and I like it, it. Makes it a different mm. story and about something else, and I like that. Mm. That's interesting because in some ways I can see how maybe that makes it feel perhaps like it has doesn't have that sort of unifying come conflict or some, you know, some sort of unifying, um, not maybe, maybe conflict is what I'm thinking of that just kind of drives the plot. And so sometimes it feels like it's a little bit unfocused, but I guess, I guess to your point, it's, it's, it's actually an example of the way it is focused. It's just not focused on the things that maybe we as readers most obviously want, or maybe it's just, we've been conditioned to want something that right, within 200 right. years since then. Right. And I mean, so the, the conflicts are mainly external for yeah, Eleanor yeah. as opposed to internal. We're all about the internal. I mean, she has some obviously, but, but we're all about the internal conflicts and we get a lot more of that in Pride and Prejudice. Mm. That's much more modern. Yeah. And I'm struck by how a lot of the conflicts are conflicts that other people are enduring and they're meaningful to her because of how much she cares about people like her, mm. like her sister. Marianne has to endure a great deal and Eleanor's relationship to that is supporting her sister, you know, it's meaningful to her because of how much she loves her sister and how much she mm-hmm. worries about her. And in some ways, I could see that as—is that a criticism you've heard from people? I'm, I just just occurred to me. I could see people saying, "Well, it doesn't. She's not enough of her own person in this novel." Mm-hmm. People say that. Yes. Do you, Do you buy that? No, I think that's ridiculous. But I think we've had that. We've talked yeah, right, a lot right. about that. Yeah, in we have. Conversations yeah. that we've had. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, Heidi? Do you have anything in particular that you think stands out about this novel? You, like I said, we've talked about things that maybe it, ways that it's not quite as mature. But in what ways do you think it it, it, it is uniquely Jane Austen, or it is uh, uniquely great? I guess. Yeah. So I find this novel to be very soothing. I'd like to read this novel because the message that that I always get from Sense and Sensibility, even more than some of her other novels, is it's okay to live an ordinary life. Like you're not selling out. This is what life is. Like find a good man who loves you and live a lower middle class <laughs> life like this and be happy. Right. And I think that I find that to be very soothing and refreshing in kind of this 
chaotic age of like, go find yourself, like live extraordinary, right? Like just that, that is delightful. And the strong attachment that the sisters have. And I think some of the conversations on the Facebook page, and of course that's typical of Austin, but I, some so many of the conversations I've seen take place on the Facebook page, I think are just exactly getting at the heart of the novel, which is let's explore these interpersonal relationships and find ourselves in them somewhere, you know, without having this pressure to live an extraordinary life. And, you know, it's not Jane Eyre again of like, go find this troubled man that you can fix who has a crazy wife in the attic and that'll be your grand love story. So that's just not normal. um, And I like how Austin depicts a normal life, depicts an ordinary humanity. I find that to be delightful. And I think she does that extraordinarily well in this particular novel. Hmm. Do you think, um, either of you, do you think that that is as evident in her other work, like Persuasion or Emma or Mansfield Park or Pride and Prejudice, I guess? Or is that, would you say that's actually unique to this book? I I think, I mean, I'll, I'll answer this quickly. I think that that is kind of across the board for Austin, that there's kind of this depiction of ordinary human life. Mm-hmm. But this is the novel, I think, that it is kind of, the moral punchline. Yeah. I mean, I, I find at the end of Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth does become pretty rich. So. She does. <laughs> and so does Jane. And they, they jump up a social status. And they, you yeah. know, like there's... It's a big success story. Yes. It's almost American. a little bit different. Yeah, this is a little different. Especially since Eleanor is the one who is kind of the heroine of the novel and she doesn't end up with as much money as Marianne. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Is Persuasion, I haven't read that in a while. Does that cover some of these same subjects, Karen? Um, Which su- subjects? You mean like, like what, what Heidi was What Heidi's talking? describing there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's hard for us to translate because everyone in Austin's world, well, except for maybe um, uh, Fanny and uh, Mansfield Park, um, but they all seem more upper class than most of us or their world is, you know, is wealthier than ours. So, so it doesn't seem ordinary to us, but what Heidi was saying is exactly right. You know, I mean, ordinary is sort of relative, I guess. And so in the worlds that Austin depicts in all of her novels, the women are ultimately living ordinary lives and finding love and happiness in that ordinariness. So um, but I agree, it is more obvious in this novel. So I hesitate to bring this subject up again because it is something we have kind of um, <laughs> we've kind of talked about ad nauseum on this podcast over the over the years. But would you say, well, okay, it's also going to come down to how you define your terms. But would you then say that that Jane Austen's books and this one in particular are sort of anti-ambition? <laughs> Like, are they... I'm laughing, Karen, because this is a very, very common conversation. <laughs> well, go, go ahead. I, I, I'm in, I did not... Yeah, I don't know anything about the context for this. Well, we've just had a lot of conversations over the years about various characters in books who are ambitious and the degree to which that's good and bad. And, and it turns mm-hmm. out people just define or their, their first instinct. People have very different responses to the idea of ambition. For some people, it's a great 
um, it's a positive thing. And then for some people, it's a very, very negative thing. Just their first response is, and it seems to have a lot to do with how they heard the word use um, over the years. Um, so I, it, you're talking about the idea of a kind of normal, um, everyday life and this idea that, you know, it seems like the characters in this book who try to reach the highest kind of, it never really works for them. Um, now that's not necessarily true of Pride and Prejudice because as we said, both of them move up a, a you know, a level in the, in the society, in the culture. So does it feel like Austin is like that she views ambition as a vice or a virtue? Like if she had, what's the opposite? And what would be the book title if you had the word ambition in the title? <laughs> the sense and sensibility, ambition, and I don't know what it is. But does she see, does she, do you think she views it as a vice or a virtue, Karen? I'll go with you first. Um, well, again, it, it always depends on the definition of terms. And so, I mean, ambition, depending on the word. So ambition in virtue ethics, um, I mean, it's, if we use that as sort of a virtue, you could have an excess of it or a deficiency. Right. Um, and so I think, I mean, so if ambition is like, doing great deeds or something like that. Um, yeah. If your ambition is to do great, a lot of great things. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. So, so doing that in excess is a, is a vice and, and lacking it is also a, a vice of deficiency. So I would say that, that Austin wants her characters in this novel and in, in the others to, um, to do good things at least. Um, mm. and for the women, of course, that means choosing a marriage partner. Well, um, you know, making a good, a good choice and living well. Um, so, you know, so, so for example, again, to go back to pride and prejudice, Char I'm, I'm just, this is a good question on my mind is really spinning, but so Charlotte <laughs> Lucas may be aimed too low. I mean, she was satisfied mm. with her choice, mm. but mm -hmm. from Elizabeth's perspective, her, you know, her standards were too low, mm. um, for a marriage partner. Mm. Um, so I think that Austin does play with this question in maybe a different way. I was thinking about the concept of contentment is, is, is Austin trying to make the case that her character's like was Marianne's problem that she wasn't content and that she was thus reaching beyond what she should have been reaching for or, you know, and I don't mean just like socially, I just mean she was, she was allowing herself to slip into vice because she wasn't content with what was either available or most obvious or, you know, within range or I don't know, however you want to put it. Right. I haven't thought about this. I'm talking right. as I'm thinking. Um, Right. I'll put a question mark there and let you now take over the thinking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, I, it's a good question. And I, I think that's more of a modern question than an Edwardian English question. Marianne's problem... Is that a criticism? A I can't tell if I'm being criticized right now. No, well... <laughs> um, I, th I guess what I'm saying is, again, if you're defining the terms of a question, we have to put the question within the context in which it is originally propounded to the audience, meaning mm -hmm. 
that what I think Austin is Austin is pointing out Marianne's problem that's for certain. Like throughout the entire novel, she is using Marianne as a virtuous young woman who is almost led astray by herself and others, but is kind of brought back into the fold. Let me stop you right? there. Then. Let me stop you there. Is this, yeah. for clarity's sake, not because I think you're going to say something dumb now. Um, right. <laughs> is is it is the, is she being led astray by an outside force or by her own vice? Right. So I think the answer to that is both. Marianne is foolish. She's young and she's foolish because she has bought into this cult of sensibility, which is in many ways a reflection of her own flawed and disordered desires within her own self. So it's both. And it is her disappointment in love. It is Willoughby's villainy and betrayal that we've talked about so much that then gives her the opportunity to repent. And she does take that opportunity. And that is how Marianne is redeemed. I don't think it, I don't think that Austin is saying that that's because of the reasons that you just asked me. I think that she is more trying to point to, again, this problem with the cult of sensibility um, within the culture at that time, that that's the problem. And Marianne kind of represents it, and not as an allegory, but as an example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ambition question is important because there are so many... And I'm going to say this, I think this is true. Again, I think Austin writes women better than men. And I think in these novels, there are so many women who are ambitious towards the wrong things. Lucy Steele, right? Mrs. Bennett. Like there's disordered ambition towards marriage and social status and money. That is a huge theme in Austin but not the heroines of her novels. They fight against that. They live in virtue and then they are rewarded. Karen, would you like a turn to think out loud now? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I, I do think that there's more social criticism like so for, with Mrs. Bennett and, and Lucy Steele. Um, yes, they have character flaws, but I think Austin's also showing how it's the culture that is disordered that's mm-hmm. created this um, desperation on the part of young women and their mothers um, because their options are so limited and their position is so tenuous um, in the in this kind of society. So, um, you know, it's like you know denying women an education and then and then accusing them of being shallow. Um, I mean, which, you know, we st- still have that sort of thing going on on the internets today. Um, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so... So I think... I think social criticism is... I think Austin is... is concerned with social criticism as much and sometimes more than character development, character, Mm -hmm. at Uh least in terms of the minor characters. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, this is interesting stuff. I think, (laughs) 
But um, speaking of character, yeah. there were a couple passages I wanted to make sure that we got to since this is the end. Yeah, I was, I, that was, I was actually, I had, I had reserved a section at the end of the podcast to make sure we covered passages that oh, you okay. guys liked right. that you wanted okay. to do that. Okay. So let's, no, let's turn to it now. We've been going long enough. So right. you're, well, it's not so much, I mean, it, they're just important. They aren't necessarily, well, all right, there is one I like, but I think two, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot I like. Two key things that happen in, to this last part of the novel have mm-hmm. to do with the character of Marianne and the character of Eleanor. And so in um, chapter 10 of volume three, which is, I don't know what chapter that is without the volumes, but <laughs> it's where we get Marianne's, you know, turning point, her repentance, her development clearly spelled out um, yeah. when she says, um, I saw in my own behavior since the beginning of our acquaintance with him last autumn, nothing but a series of imprudence towards myself and want of kindness to others. I saw that my own feelings had prepared my sufferings and that my want of fortitude under them had almost led me to the grave. My illness I well knew had been entirely brought on by myself to such negligence of my own health as I had felt even at the time to be wrong. Had I died, it would have been self-destruction. This is her confession and repentance of her extreme sensibility that not only has harmed those around her, but she recognizes has actually harmed herself to the point where she almost lost her life. That's really dramatic and big and Mm. profound. And then we did talk about this uh, an episode or two ago about... um, Eleanor, you know, Eleanor at the end and how the film version maybe exaggerates a little bit or a lot of, you know, what happens to Eleanor. <laughs> but it does say, and this is chapter 13, so that's like the next to last chapter, I think. Um, you know, when Edward comes in, that famous scene in the book, in the film, um, and the narrator tells us, But Eleanor, how are her feelings to be described? Well, because she's been talking about Marianne. From the moment of learning that Lucy was married to another, that Edward was free, to the moment of his justifying the hopes which had so instantly followed, she was everything by turns but tranquil. But when the second moment had passed, when she found every doubt, every solicitude removed, compared her situation with what so lately it had been, saw him honorably released from his former engagement, saw him instantly profiting by the release to address herself and declare an affection as tender, as constant as she had ever supposed it to be. So everything's revealed. She's free. They're going to get together. She was oppressed. She was overcome by her own felicity and happily disposed as is the human mind to be easily familiarized with any change for the better. It required several hours to give sedateness to her spirits or any degree of tranquility to her heart. She really is, you know, has lost her tranquility, her senses um, through this. And so I I think the film actually does do, um, it it doesn't exaggerate it a lot more. It just makes it more visual than than verbal. Mm. So that is, so Eleanor has kind of lost her senses for a little bit, overcome with this joy and happiness. And so that's her change. And Mary, so they always said that they have the in, inverse yes, changes yeah. between them. I love the moment where Eleanor has to leave the room. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think she finds out that, you know, Robert actually married Robert, right? Yeah, Robert married um, Lucy. And so then she's, she, 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 it says she practically ran out of the room and he just kind of watches her go. Um, <laughs> I think I love that little moment because it's so unlike she's, Austin has spent so much time 
so many times um, being so careful to tell us how still Eleanor mm. keeps herself. Like she doesn't, she doesn't even get up when people come into the room half the time. She doesn't, um, you know, she gets up at times to be polite, but she, when bad things or when she hears things that make her sad or upset or bad or whatever, even when she's sitting with Marianne, she just sits there over and over again. And when Marianne's sick, she just sits there all night long. And then here in this moment, she gets up and moves. And I, I, the, that, little, that little bit of action is, I think, mm-hmm. a really nice bit of characterization and drama. Um, there was something and, else I was going to say. I forgot what it was, so go on. <laughs> well, I'll just say one of my favorite lines in the whole novel is in this part as well. Um, when uh, Eleanor... Um, with this is in the midst of this, she's moving, sitting down. I will be calm. I will be mistress of myself. <laughs> I love that. Yep. Um, Heidi, do you have any, is there anything else, any other passages that you wanted to uh, make sure we touched or, or okay. that you just enjoyed? So what's really funny is that it was both of those passages. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes to show how important, no, no, it goes to show how important they are and how satisfying they are to us as readers who've been waiting this whole time. (laughs) And I think part of what we're waiting for is for Eleanor and Edward to get together. But mainly what we've been waiting for is for Eleanor to be happy, to not have to be mistress of herself Mm. so much, right? But to, to, to be in some sense freed from this kind of constant vigilant restraint that she has had to have over her emotions, the sense she's had to display throughout this whole novel. And there comes a time when it just feels so good to us as the reader to see that relaxed Mm -hmm. and to see her just happy. And I think that's lovely. The thing that's amazing about it though, going back to that scene that I just mentioned is just that, is that um, she doesn't just kind of like, it doesn't just like, burst forth with like a waterfall or whatever, you know, to use mm-hmm. a silly metaphor there. She, it's, there's still propriety going on, right? She still kind of is ruling herself enough to, you know, right. step well, outside. And even, yes. And even in her happiness in the passage, that that's why I love the passage that Karen, that you read. I mm-hmm. love that passage a lot because that shows that it really is just Eleanor's natural it, it, this isn't about society. This is about her. Her natural inclination is she wants to be mistress of herself, right? She she desires to be alone, to regain kind of that composure that is that is part of her, not just because it's expected of her, but because that's her. Mm-hmm. Like, and um, but one thing that I I think is a I think is a little wink from Jane Austen um, is on the very next page after that, that, but Eleanor, how are her feelings to be described? Passage this is in 13. Yes. Um, just the, about Robert marrying Lucy. And I think that's the weakest point in any Austen novel ever. Like, I just really think that's weak. I, that, that they, I think that's a weak point. And I think that Austen knows it. And so, here she, I think she's winking maybe at herself a little bit, certainly as to us as readers. Um, this little, I think this passage is brilliant. It's Eleanor wondering how Robert could have married Lucy. Saying Robert could be drawn on to marry a girl of whose beauty she had herself heard him speak without any admiration. A girl too 
already engaged to his brother and on whose account that brother had been thrown off by his family. It was beyond her comprehension to make out. To her own heart, it was a delightful affair. To her imagination, it was even a ridiculous one. But to her reason, her judgment, it was completely a puzzle. (laughs) And I think that's how every reader reads this little thing that happened. You're like, wait, what? Like... And, and and Austin just writes it into the novel. <laughs> I think that's kind of brilliant. <laughs> Karen, were you going to say something in response to what she was saying? No, I think okay, I might have okay. cut out a tiny bit or something here. But Okay, okay. I love that. I, I do love the bit in chapter 13, though, where, where they it's Lucy's letter to Edward, where uh-huh. she's like, I have long lost your affections and I decided your brother was better. But yeah. then the, her PS at the end of that is like, so funny where she says well first of all she says she ends the letter your sincere well-wisher friend and sister and then she says i have burnt all your letters and will return your picture the first opportunity please to destroy my scrawls but the ring with my hair you are very welcome to keep (laughs) (laughs) yes i can't get it back anyway i just that's the most that line is the most lucy line of all the lucy lines i think that's pretty great that's great Okay. Well, all right, let's do... We're almost out of time here. So let's do. go ahead and touch on some final thoughts. Again, next week, we'll have plenty to talk about because people will ask their questions. So we'll be able to fill in the gaps that our listeners are uh, are um, feeling. Um, the, uh, the tension they're feeling because we didn't cover something. Um, but uh, Heidi, I'll let you go first and then, I'll, and then Karen, I'll turn to you. Final thoughts on, on at least this portion of the conversation of the novel. Sure. So I'm I'm expecting then, since we didn't really talk about it today, some conversation, some questions in the Q&A episode about Colonel Brandon and Marianne, which mm-hmm. is in many ways one of the most controversial authorial decisions mm-hmm. that Jane Austen ever made in her career is to marry off Marianne to Colonel Brandon. So I'm 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 expecting some lively conversation about that on the Q&A thread whenever we post that. But I'm a big Colonel Brandon fan, so I'll just throw that out there. Karen, where do you stand in the uh, Colonel Brandon, Marianne? Oh, I'm, I'm a fan. I think they're a great match and Marianne just didn't know it um, until, you know, she just didn't know what she needed and mm. um, ultimately, therefore, what she should want and did want. Um, I think one last point that I want to make is just the very the way the novel closes in terms of its last couple of sentences, um, because it's a weird kind of closing. Um, between Bar- well, but it's but it's telling between Barton and Delaford, their two homes. There was that constant communication which strong family affection would naturally dictate, and among the merits and the happiness of Eleanor and Marianne, let it not be ranked as the least considerable that those sisters, and living almost within sight of each other, they could live without disagreement between themselves or producing coolness between their husbands. That's how the novel ends. Right? <laughs> About how two sisters got along and their husbands got along. And it's not about their love and their romance, but mm. about their family rapport and relationship. Mm. I think that's important. Yeah. It's interesting too. Because I was I was thinking about the, that because it didn't even occur to me that they wouldn't get along. Like just given what we know of them, mm-hmm. so I was surprised. I was thinking, well, why did she tell us that? And then when you think about it, it's like, well, clearly she's making a, a grander point here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like she had made some mistake along the way. Um, do you want to talk about that more? 
just, I think, you know, it's the idea. I mean, when you marry, we still say this today, but we say it because we don't remember it. Austin knew when you marry, you marry a family. And so Mm. two sisters who are single, who love one another, get along is an entirely different thing than two sisters who marry into separate families, live near one another. I mean, again, even the opening line has to do with the family being settled. Um, families are often not settled in Austin's world. And so, mm. I mean, in the, in the best and in most important senses of the word. And so the fact that these families settled near one another and remained happily so is important, apparently, in this world. That's the almost like the bigger resolution than, than any of them yes. actually just getting married. Yeah. Right. Uh, especially given that the book, I guess, is to be, begins with the dissolution of or maybe the first steps towards dissolution with their father dying and mm-hmm. then the possibility of them all being swept off to different places and their mother being alone and who knows what happens to margaret um you know and their, and all their that brother, possibility their brother rejecting you know, their mm, half brother yeah. did reject them um and the sis and his wife rejecting them right right, right. the in-laws not right. getting along <laughs> So it's, I hadn't really thought about this. So that's a complete, the ending is a complete, uh, the picture of the family at the end of a family at the end is a complete reversal of the picture of a family we have at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm. I wonder if that's true in Pride and Prejudice too. I mean, in some ways, I guess it is because they're not a very, it's a kind of a <laughs> uncomfortable family dynamic in the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, but then they all, uh, I, have to, I don't know. I have to think about that. Heidi, final thoughts? Well, just this whole section on Willoughby too here at the end, I find that so fascinating that he, um, you know, uh, clearly remains in love with Marianne. And yet there's this couple of sentences here that are just so fascinating to me. He lived to exert and frequently to enjoy himself. His wife was not always out of humor, nor his home always uncomfortable. And in his breed of horses and dogs, and in sporting of every kind, he found no inconsiderable degree of domestic felicity. So Austin doesn't even give us, you know, some like drunken, homeless, <laughs> yeah, yeah. depressed and sad Willoughby who, you know, cannot live without Marianne and is destitute all of his days and unhappy with his wife. Like he, hmm. he's... He's okay. He's content. Yes. Yes, he's content. You can be content with the wrong things. We don't get the wife burning in the attic, right? We get (laughs) the... None of this is going to be the big romantic story. So, and, and I think that's just brilliant on Austin's part. She's like, these are ordinary lives. It felt very intense for a season of time and then everybody moved on. Never occurred to me that Willoughby could grow up to be a Rochester. That's a new one. That's a new thought. Hmm. It's Rochester, right? In January? Yeah. 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 Yep. I guess lucky for uh, whoever comes to live with them and watch their children. That's probably probably a good thing, I suppose. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. 
Although that would be... Uh, someone has to have done a mashup of those books, right? <laughs> it's got to be a mashup <laughs> somewhere. I'm sure there is, yes. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies version. <laughs> well, thanks to you both for uh, for chatting. Next week, we will, as I said, um, answer questions. So we'll post the thread, uh, get that up today. And then if you want to email them, you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. And then on social media, it's at closereadspods. Uh, because for whatever reason, I couldn't do the other ones. <laughs> Couldn't include the ASTS at the end of that. So um, Close Reads Pods on social media, podcasts at gmail.com uh, to send in your questions. And we'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget about all of the uh, Patreon stuff. We have the episode on Ernest Hemingway that we did. And coming up soon, we're going to have a, um, a poetry episode for the month of July and then also another short story for the month of July. Um, Karen, you are going to be with Heidi and I at uh, the conference next yes, week. So I'm so excited. I think you'll probably meet a couple listeners there at least. I know at least I know a handful of people will be there. So I'm sure you'll get to sign autographs or sign babies or something. Um, <laughs> I can <laughs> sign my sermon notes. <laughs> I, I saw I saw that. I saw <laughs> I don't do sermons for anyone, any trolls listening as a joke. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just Google it. Just go on Twitter and Google it and you'll understand what she's talking about. That was um that was some good that was some good trolling by you though. Just there. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I learned from the best. <laughs> yeah. All the ones who troll you on the internet. Yes. Um all right. So your book is coming out on the 9th, and people can find that on Amazon or Eighth Day Books or wherever they like to buy books. And it's called what again? It's called Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. All right. All right. So be be on the lookout for that. Congratulations on getting that done. Thank you. It was quite a labor of love. (laughs) I hope that the, uh, I don't know, press tour or whatever you're, you're doing for that is not too, too overwhelming over the next week or so. Thank you. Good luck with that. For Heidi, for Karen, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Happy reading. And we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.